We believe all women have stories and wisdom to share, just like the many unnamed women we read about in the Bible. Here's what we've realized about those unidentified women. They had names. They were real people and they had stories worth telling, but their names were unrevealed. We created the Unrevealed Podcast to give power to the untold stories of everyday women. You may have heard that your story doesn't matter, but we believe God can use our testimonies as weapons against the enemy. When we use our story to connect with others, we get to glorify the goodness of God. Join us as we reveal these stories of heartache, hope, and redemption. Each episode, you will hear featured women share one story from their life by answering three questions. What's your story? What did God show you in that season? And what is God showing you now? I'm your host, Courtney Haggard. And remember, every story matters. Welcome to the Unrevealed Podcast. Today we're talking to Tara Warren, the founder of the Tenaciously Teal nonprofit that is dedicated to meeting the needs of cancer fighters through care packs, gas and meal cards, and throwing private brave shave parties. We will talk more about that and where you can connect with her at the end of this episode, so make sure you stick around. You know, you're my first guest that I don't know personally. I was connected to you through our mutual friend, Chrissy Kyles, who I met during my grad program at UCO. She also just launched a podcast called Bliss with Chris, where they cover adulting, college and careers, as well as social justice. You can find her on Facebook and SoundCloud. I will link all of her information in the episode notes, as well as the Tenaciously Teal nonprofit stuff. So because I don't actually know you in person, I don't have an introduction for you. So I'm going to go ahead and turn the mic over to you and let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, I'm Tara Warren. I'm a cancer survivor. I fought stage four ovarian cancer. Um, I'm also a wife. I've been married to my husband, Benjamin, for 12 years. Uh, I came to Oklahoma Uh, from San Diego. That's where I grew up and came out here for school and met my husband just six months before I graduated. And so I've been in Oklahoma since 2003. And now you may notice I talk with the accent and say y'all and all that. (laughs) Isn't that so weird? My phone actually autocorrects the word tall to y'all, which y'all's not a word, but I grew up in California. So I don't understand, but apparently I use it enough that my phone autocorrects an actual word to y'all. It makes ordering Starbucks really interesting. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thank you for sharing that. Let's go ahead and jump into what your story is. So you're going to be sharing a part of your story with us today about your journey through getting diagnosed with cancer, correct? Yes. So uh, I was diagnosed uh, when I was 29 years old with stage four ovarian cancer. But prior to that, uh, a lot of people asked me, you know, how did you uh, come to being diagnosed with ovarian cancer? How did you know? Um, One thing I like to mention when I'm talking to people about ovarian cancer is that there is actually no early detection test for ovarian cancer at all. Um, So a woman's annual exam does not detect ovarian cancer. Um, You just have to look for subtle signs and symptoms. And so five years prior to 
my diagnosis, I started complaining about having a lot of pain and went to numerous doctors. I even had an exploratory surgery um, where my oncologist believes I actually had cancer um, during that exploratory surgery. But because I wasn't with a specialist and somebody who knew what they were looking for, um, I was misdiagnosed and went another four years um, with the cancer, um, which had started to spread. And so by the time they found it, it was stage four, which those that are familiar with uh, staging for cancer know that that is essentially as bad as it can get um, being diagnosed with stage four. So um, by the time they found it, I um, had cancer all throughout both ovaries and um, even in my peritoneal cavity and my colon. And so when I got the diagnosis, it was really dire. Um, in fact, I remember very clearly sitting across from my oncologist just a couple of weeks before Christmas in 2012 and her telling me that I was going to die from this diagnosis. Wow. Yeah. You didn't even get, you didn't just get a cancer diagnosis. You got the worst possible case scenario diagnosis. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it was, I mean, I remember her telling me how sick I was, which I knew I was having problems. I had dealt with a lot of pain, um, you know, over those five years of getting a diagnosis and had kind of just learned to live with it. But um, I was also in the best shape of my life at that time. Um, I was super active. I was working uh, full time. You know, my husband and I um, were traveling a lot. And so all of a sudden, my life just stopped. And um, I was facing death. I can't imagine. It was, um, yeah, it was so hard. Um, you know, because I was 29, so relatively young, young, <laughs> I'm 37 now. So 29 sounds pretty good. I had only been married a few years, you know, my husband and I were planning for a family, um, and to have children. And all of a sudden I'm faced with an ovarian cancer diagnosis and I have to undergo a hysterectomy, uh, or what they call a debulking surgery when you have advanced stage ovarian cancer. So that essentially means they take out as much as possible to give you the best chance of survival. And it's a very extensive surgery, very hard surgery. I underwent that almost immediately. I had a few days to prepare for it and went in for the surgery. It was an eight hour surgery and I was in the hospital for over a week. And I just remember waking up in this excruciating amount of pain. I was so sick and just felt like I was dying. Uh, it was a really, really dark time. It was very difficult recovery in those first few days. I truly didn't think I was going to make it. And the couple days after surgery, uh, the physical therapist comes in my room and says, you need to start like getting up and start walking the hallways to get stronger and to be able to get out. 
I was really motivated to be home for Christmas. That was what I thought could potentially be my last Christmas. And so I really wanted to make it home. So it resonated with me that if I walked the halls more, I could get stronger and be able to make it home for Christmas. So despite being in excruciating pain and, you know, down and and depressed at that time, I walked the halls. I recognized that every room was filled um, in this long hallway. I mean, I was at OU Cancer Center in downtown Oklahoma City, which is a large hospital. And what really impacted me was I was on the cancer floor of this hospital. So every room was occupied by someone who had heard the words, you have cancer. And so I remember being really burdened in my heart about that. There were so many people fighting cancer, and I was just in one hospital in one city, and there were this many people. The second thing that I noticed is there were so many people who were by themselves. There were not people coming to visit them. They didn't have flowers or cards set up in their room, and that was a contrast to my hospital room. I had people from all over the country sending me cards and sending me flowers and coming by my room and walking the halls with me and bringing me snacks and blankets and pajamas and praying for me. And then there were people that were also fighting for their life, but they just didn't have one person to do that for them. It was really alarming to me. And, um, I've always uh, had a heart for people in need. Um, That's why I got my degree in social work and why I spent 10 years working for child welfare. So I saw some of these cancer fighters and they reminded me of some of my clients in child welfare. They lacked a support system. They lacked financial resources. And I just thought I knew a lot of my clients If they had received a diagnosis, I mean, it would be, it's devastating for anyone, but um, it would just be very, very difficult to overcome all that fighting cancer entails, um, being so sick, having to be in the hospital and just being alone. So my heart was just really burdened. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this and I've never heard this story in full before. And I can't help but think about the fact that you are coming to the end of this long journey fighting for your health, you you said it had been years, years since you had started feeling symptoms but weren't getting answers. And then it's just before Christmas time. You get this incredibly devastating diagnosis. It's not just you have cancer. It's you have potentially terminal cancer. Uh, the only way that we might be able to give you a chance at living is we need to take away, we need to take out the parts of your body that would give you the opportunity to have children. Um, you're, so you're facing, okay, I might die. And even if I live, I'm not going to be able to live life the way I had planned. My husband and I wanted to have children. And now this is not going to be an option to have children of our own, you know, the way that most people do. And then you have this massive surgery. You wake up in the hospital. You're in pain. You're walking to try and get healthy. And you're thinking of other people. This is what's crossing your mind, not 
what am I going to do after this? But what about everyone else? And I think that speaks volumes about who you are as a person, because I know a lot of people would be so caught up in the pain that they're in themselves and not really even noticing the fact that there are people lining these halls facing the same thing. So what, what happened after that? What did you do or what was God showing you after you're walking these halls and just trying to recover from your own crazy story and you're looking at these other people facing such a similar fate as you? Yeah. So, I mean, there was really uh, one night in my hospital room where I was praying for some of these faces of people I had seen, um, you know, who were sad, who were hurting, who were downtrodden and, um, just praying that God would send them someone, send them, um, hope, just be near them, um, to give them strength, all these things. And I just kind of felt this like tugging at my heart, this almost leading of, um, well, what, what can you do uh, about it? Um, obviously it was not an audible question, but that was, what I felt like was happening in my heart, like this pull of God asking me to do something. And I remember kind of opening my eyes in the hospital room and, and seeing all these flowers people had sent me. And um, I probably had like 15 flower arrangements in my hospital room at the time. And I just thought, you know, what? I'm going to disperse these to those people um, who are by themselves and just give them a little joy and a little present, a little Christmas present. And so I did that on my next walk. I, I bring one with me and I uh, go into a room and just uh, say, I want to give you something. I remember that first arrangement I gave away um, was someone who lived in rural Oklahoma. I don't, I don't remember the town, but they expressed that they lived, you know, several hours away and they didn't know that they would be able to make it to treatment because they couldn't afford the gas to get back and forth. And they didn't have a support system to even bring them if they were really sick and couldn't drive. And that was truly mind boggling to me because I had never thought I'm not going to be able to put gas in my car to get to treatment or I'm not going to have someone to come with me to treatment and sit with me. And that was just a really eye opening conversation. Um, and it, it highlighted my blessings, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, there definitely were times where I did feel sorry for myself and the gravity of all that was happening weighed really heavily on, on me. But when you see someone who's fighting a similar battle, but doesn't, you know, have access to just basic resources, it makes you so thankful for things that you take for granted, like pulling up to a gas pump and putting gas in your car. Um, for some people, that's a luxury. And that's what God was revealing to me as I disperse my flower arrangements and, and talk to people that there is, um, truly a need there. Um, 
for something. And at that time, I didn't know what that was. I just knew God had put me in this position um, or at least opened my eyes to this this need and this hurt um, that was happening around me. So what did that look like afterward? I mean, you're still in the hospital at this point. What were some of your next steps? What was God showing you, speaking to you, leading you in as you were coming home from the hospital, as you were recovering? Because obviously it's been years, so you did make a recovery, thank the Lord. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about what those next couple of months and weeks and years look like? Yeah, so um, I recovered for six weeks after my surgery and at home, and then I started chemo. And I was scheduled for 16 months of chemotherapy. I had six months of what I describe as my really intensive chemo, and then 10 months of maintenance chemo, which was actually a clinical trial at the time to see if doing an ex, um, extended an amount of chemo would prevent recurrence, which is really, really high with ovarian cancer, about 85 percent rate of recurrence for ovarian cancer diagnosis. Um, so I started chemo and I did intraperitoneal chemo, which means essentially my port. A lot of people know chemo ports to be on um, people's collarbones, but mine was on my rib. And so they would fill my stomach up with chemo and it would be about an eight hour infusion. It was really scary to think about sitting there for eight hours while they're pumping poison in your body. I knew going in, my oncologist had warned me, would make me really, really sick. And I remember thinking, oh, my oncologist was not kidding. Um, it was really, really hard. It was really, really, really sick. And I just kind of kept getting sicker. Uh, chemo's cumulative. So initially I'd, you know, be sick for a few days and then you kind of bounce back and have um, some good days in between your chemo. But the more chemos you get, again, it's cumulative. So as it builds in your system, you have less and less good days. I couldn't hardly eat. I lost a lot of weight. I got down to like 90 pounds. And um, as I went to treatment, I again, recognize just a lot of people by themselves, people sitting for eight hours at a time, completely alone, people who you knew immediately just upon looking at them that they were poverty stricken, um, people who I could tell uh, lacked hope. And that was uh very difficult for me to think about because I always believed in God. There are times in my adolescent years that I questioned, you know, my faith and beliefs, but had come into my adult years, like with this really strong faith that God is real. And, um, I knew that was a fact. And so that was comforting to me as you are so sick facing death, um, facing this extreme diagnosis, I, I had hope is what I'm trying to say. I, ha I had this underlying hope that no matter what happens, um, I knew God was real and I, I knew heaven was real and 
I knew that's where I was going if, um, when I die. And again, recognize people didn't have that same hope. And so I just, again, went back to that night in my hospital room where I felt like God was asking me to reach out to people. So I just started to think, how could I do that? What was a tangible way to um, show people love and encouragement? And I started looking at all these things I was using on a daily basis to fight cancer, things in my little bag I would bring with me. I always had hand sanitizer and chapstick. I'd always have a little journal with me to not necessarily journal. Sometimes I did, but just to like write down questions for my oncologist when it like popped into my head. So I'd have it for next time. And I drink a lot of green tea because that helps soothe my stomach. I always had fuzzy socks with me because they keep chemo rooms really, really cold. I drank a lot of Gatorade because water started to taste like metal and So I started putting all these things in little gift bags and just bringing like five or 10 with me to treatment and then just looking for those people who were by themselves. And I'd write a little note in each one and just share my faith and just let people know that I was going to be praying for them. And there are even some people I give care packs to that feel like God at the time gave me this boldness to you know, ask if I could pray with people. And I just did that for every treatment and started to kind of become the care pack lady <laughs> when I went to treatment. Well, and you know, as you're telling me this, I'm thinking God's hand had to have been on this because as you're describing how awful it is to go through chemo, that's something I've never experienced. And I know how I get when I don't feel good. And I can tell you if I have to sit there week in and week out with no good days in between taking in this chemo. Like you said, it's so hard to do. It's so hard on your system. You feel awful and you're sitting there thinking, how can I make somebody else's day better? Because I know what I'm going through is bad and I want to make this better for somebody else. That's the kind of anointing and grace that God puts on our lives when he gives us one of his missions, because I don't think that you can do that in your own strength. Because at least I know I wouldn't be able to because just thinking about feeling that sick for that long, that often is exhausting to me and I don't have to experience it. I can't imagine the reality of that and still going out of your way and creating community and um, hope for the people around you. And I'm also just thinking about the people that were sitting there for eight hours at a time without any support and without any hope and without any supplies. That seems so devastating. So I can see your heart in it. I can see uh, why God was calling you to do that. But I'm also amazed at the ability of you to do that in reality, to actually make that happen while you're still in your own fight, very real fight for a long time, 16 months. That's a very long time to be facing that kind of, that's, we talk about an uphill battle. That seems like a really, really big hill. Yes. Yeah, it, it was, um, it was sometimes I I look back and I mean, I know how I got through it. God uh, really carried me through that. He was with me in a very tangible way. Uh, I remember specifically one day I had thrown up all night 
and I had chemo the next day. And I, I was like, there's no way I can go. There's no way I can go to treatment today. Like I've been sick. I haven't slept. I'm so nauseous, like going and getting, you know, another infusion just was revolting to me. It just made me even more sick thinking about it. I was in such a bad state of physically and mentally. I didn't even feel like I could pray. Like I had the words to pray. I was just really at that moment wanting to just give up. And I remember just kind of barely propping my head up and reciting the Lord's prayer that I had memorized as a little girl and not really said, um, maybe a couple times in church, you know, but it's just not in my like normal faith arsenal as far as like my prayer life, like saying that, but for some reason I just felt led to say that. And as I said, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I just felt the sickness lift off of me, like literally. I mean, it gives me chills now thinking about that moment because it was such a, a contrast to how I had been feeling. And then all of a sudden it wasn't nauseous anymore. And I, I just knew that had to be the Holy spirit. Uh, and so I got out of bed and I gathered up care packs, you know, to bring with me to that treatment. And I remember walking into treatment and seeing people and saying hello and, and greeting people and greeting people who had become my friends at the front desk and nursing staff. And even one of my friends who had come to treatment with me that day, she's like, man, you're really feeling good today. That's so awesome. And I shared with her what had happened. And we both just had tears in our eyes because she said, you're not that sick person right now. I'm looking at a healthy person. I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face just listening to this because, you know, the older I get and the more often I obey God's calling on my life, I'm finding that he provides in ways that you don't expect, but he always shows up. The provision, the grace, the anointing, all of it is always there. And as scary as it is to say, or as hard as it is to say yes to God, he, he always shows up. He always picks up the heaviest part of the burden to enable us to do what he's asked us to do. And so I'm sitting here smiling, thinking, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I know (laughs) what you're talking about because I've experienced that in my life too. So let's move on to question number three. What is God showing you now? So it's kind of interesting with what we've been through, um, you know, in our world with the pandemic recently and, and going in quarantine and, I remember when that was like all first happening and I was so anxious about it Um, and even went into a little bit of a depression uh, because it it was all just so much. It felt so intense and, and so heavy. And I just remember like praying one day and God just reminding me of what I had been through with chemo. And going, I'd already really been in quarantine uh, for that, at least that six months of intensive chemo. I I didn't go anywhere. Um, And thinking back to how I was able to face that with strength 
encourage and be able to not only encourage like other cancer fighters, but encourage my family and, and remind them to rely on, on God and our faith and stand strong on that. I was, um, so adamant about that when I was going through chemo, I, I, I was scared, but, uh, I just felt like I, my faith was so strong then. And so I felt like when that was all kind of first starting with the quarantine that God was revealing to me that he's with me just as he was with me when I was going through chemo, that he hasn't left my side, that we can be strong and courageous and face uncertainty uh, because he's with us. Think about, you know, we get this Joshua 1, 9, and God's telling Joshua, I've commanded you to be strong and courageous because God is with you. And I started thinking about that story and we can miss the fact that we know how the story ends. The nation of Israel makes it into the promised land. But at the time, Joshua has just taken over this whole nation of Israel because the, their leader Moses has passed on. And now this heaviness is hanging on his shoulders. And I started thinking about what Joshua would have gone through and how scared he would have been and the anxiety that would have come with that role. So it's just given me a lot of strength and comfort and hope that God's walking with us and, and we don't, things look different and we don't know, you know, how this is all going to play out, but we know God's there. And as believers, as Christians, we know what happens even in the end. I think that's the biggest thing right now that he's um, been working on my heart on. And then the motto that Tenacious Lee Teal adopted very early on was to love one another. And I think that's more important. And the unrest that's happening across our world right now um, as people fight for equality and justice is that we have to remember that, you know, Jesus told his disciples that the most important commandment is to love others. I'm just trying to be more cognizant of that in just my daily life. How can I make the world better? How can I be kinder to people? How can I, um, be a better listener? How can I um, understand people better? Because I do feel like right now uh, there's people who are hurting and I know that hurts God's heart and it should hurt ours too uh, as Christians. And so I can't change the world, but there's a quote from Mother Teresa that says you can start a ripple. And so that's what I've been trying to do is just um, start a ripple effect with being kind and, and showing love and, and modeling that as a believer. Thank you so much for sharing that. Before we go, I want to give you the opportunity to share with us a little bit more about Tenaciously Teal, what it is, how we can get involved and where we can find you. Yeah. So uh, after I came out of treatment, I, thought, well, that was a good run. I'm glad we were able to help people while I was in treatment and 
I was um, cancer free. And the question was posed, well, are you going to keep going back and giving out care packs? And I remember kind of laughing at that thinking, probably not, you know, I want to stay as far away from that chemo room as possible. And then that night in the hospital came um, to mind and in my heart. And again, I just had this tugging feeling that if I didn't come back, there would be people that would just be by themselves. And um, there wouldn't be someone to remind them that they're loved and to encourage them. So with a a lot of prayer, we uh, made the decision to formalize as a 501c3 nonprofit and keep coming back and giving out care packs. And I continued at my treatment center and then just started branching out across the state of Oklahoma, where today we uh, now serve, um, have partnerships with 18 hospitals across the state and provide them with care packs and resources for their patients. And we also mail care packs nationwide. So anyone can go on our website and request a free care pack, um, be sent to them or a loved one and at no cost to them. So with uh, our in-person deliveries and mailed care packs since 2014, we've distributed over 25,000 cancer care packs to men and women fighting cancer. We do help all cancer fighters. Uh, Our name, Tenaciously Teal, derives from ovarian cancer awareness. But like I said, we help men and women fighting any type of cancer. And we also um, started providing financial assistance uh, in 2015 when a large national nonprofit discontinued um, their financial assistance program. So we stepped in with the request of some social work departments um, across the state to just help people uh, get back and forth to treatment. And there were people uh, not coming to access treatment because they couldn't afford the gas. So we started helping with that and also grocery cards. Um, And we also have a grant program that helps cancer fighters with um, just extenuating um, needs and circumstances. Like just recently, a lady is in hospice care end of life and she couldn't get a hospital bed um, and she needed just diapers. Um, Very, very um, low income family. And so we just get referrals from hospitals um, about needs of different cancer fighters and, and help with that. So with generosity from our donors, we've distributed over $100,000 in financial assistance um, to cancer fighters in need. And then we also do private brave shaves for women facing hair loss from treatment. So just to come alongside them and um, support them during the hair loss process. And yeah, we do empowerment shoots as well. We'll do makeup and photography at no cost to cancer fighters just to help women feel Uh, pretty and empowered during um, their fight. So where can people find you? So they can go to our website. It's tteal.org. That's T-T-E-A-L.org. We're also on Facebook as Tenaciously Teal and Instagram and Twitter as 
T teal underscore uh, INC. And an ink. And the way that people can get involved is through donating, or is there any volunteer opportunities if they're local here? Yeah, so we, um, if people want to contact us through our website, um, if they're interested in volunteering, uh, they can send us a message and we can add them to our volunteer um, sign up list. So when we have a need, we'll send out uh, requests for volunteers. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and your wisdom with us. I have so appreciated it and I loved hearing it. Um, and I can't wait for everyone else to get to hear it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm your host, Courtney Haggard. If you like the show and you want to know more, check us out on Facebook or Instagram and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. Please take a few minutes to leave a review and a five-star rating on iTunes. And don't forget to take a screenshot and tag the show on your social media. It seriously is so encouraging to know that you're out there and listening. Until next time, remember, your story matters.